Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, And I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Abraham, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. And we'll end our reading there this morning. A jaywalking was the, the title of uh, an occasional segment on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. Uh, and this isn't an endorsement for his entire show, but I um, have seen a few uh, of these segments of jaywalking where Jay Leno would walk around Los Angeles asking fairly simple, uh, basic questions um, like who is the president or what country is the Panama Canal in and, and you know, record people's kind of ridiculous answers. Well, um, one episode he went around asking people simply to name one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, and the most common answer that he was given was, God helps those who help themselves. Okay, that's, I hope you know, not one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, it's actually not in the Bible um, at all, uh, despite what many people think. Um, that was probably most famously used by uh, Benjamin Franklin uh, in his Farmer's Almanac, but probably even, didn't even originate uh, there uh, with him. God helps those who help themselves um, that, that could be taken to point to the truth that a, a relationship with God uh, has implications for our work ethic, um, our, our motivation, and, and that kind of thing. But I think to most people it suggests that God primarily responds to us. If, if we take initiative, if we take uh, hard-working initiative, then, then God um, supports us and, and sort of helps us along the way. He's more of a helper than, than a savior. But the Bible shows that God's help is primarily is saving us from our sins, from the consequences of our sins. Um, and that he gives this help uh, not, to, not to all people, not to every single last person, but to all kinds of people, to anyone. There's no particular category of industrious people that God helps or, or certain people in certain places. Uh, rich, poor, old, young uh, whether you've been hardworking or lazy or honest or lying or cheating or, or murderous, there's nothing about you or your past uh, that can absolutely prevent or disqualify you from knowing, from receiving God's help. If you see your need for that and receive it uh, humbly. Um, though again, those who really know and understand God's help, it, it, it does have implications for their lives. Well, this this parable um, that we've just read answers the question, I think, what does the one whom God helps look like? 
and I'll explain why. What, what does the one whom God helps look like? What does their life, their attitude look like? Um, I think it's worth um, reminding us as before we look at this parable that uh, just, just how much Jesus' teaching uh, touched on possessions and wealth and stewardship. Um, godly, kingdom-minded use of our possessions. There's the parable of the rich fool, the parable of the, the rich young ruler. Uh, in, in chapter 12 in, in Luke, there are parables, the parable of the shrewd manager. There's the rebuking of the Pharisees for their love of money, and, and on and on. And um, These principles that Jesus are teaching about wealth and stewardship are here again acted out, in a sense, um, in this parable. So first, I, I want to just um, walk through the parable again, just briefly. won't hit all the details, but just try to understand the, the story here, the basic story, what's going on. So there are two characters. The first is a rich man, and the language that describes him is of a, a, an extravagant lifestyle. Um, it says uh, he habitually did these things, that is, uh, every day, one, one translation had, every day he dressed in purple, uh, in fine linen, purple is the, the um, color of royalty and of status. He um, is living in, in splendor. Uh, that's actually kind of a difficult phrase to translate the ESV as he feasted sumptuously. It, it's speaking to the, the, the extravagance, uh, the lavishness of his lifestyle. Um, he's, we, we might think of um, people wearing... Gucci or Rolex or you know things that show as well the the uh, the status that they're they're trying that they have or they're trying to um, display. Uh, William Hendrickson calls this because of this description. He calls this the parable of the show off um, because of how he's described here. We might think of celebrities, others um, in the media who flaunt their wealth, their image, who live in and live for uh, glamour uh, and and. We all can do that in, in various ways. The other character here is Lazarus, then. Uh, Lazarus, on the other hand, is described as he's covered with sores. Uh, he's crippled. He can't walk. He uh, has to be carried by his friends and his family. Um, and he's laid at the gate of the rich man. Um, it's it probable that, that every day he's carried and, and laid here. This is kind of where he where he resides, right outside the rich man's gate of, of his, his great estate. Um, it says he was longing uh, just to be fed with crumbs from the rich man's table. Um, the, the word in, in Greek there speaks of something that you desire strongly, but you can't get. He never, he never even got a crumb from the rich man. Uh, these would have been the scraps that were typically fed to dogs, uh, a large estate like that of this rich man would have had guard dogs almost certainly. Um, maybe the dogs that come and lick the man's wounds, even though the rich man does nothing for him. And the picture I think we're given is then of the uh, Lazarus, the poor, crippled, um, decaying Lazarus, sitting there at the gate of the rich man. The rich man's walking by him in and out of his, uh, his estate every day, um, ignoring him. Every day, never even giving him a crumb, never, never giving him any uh, medical attention beyond what the dogs do and licking his sores. We can picture Lazarus probably hearing and smelling, maybe even seeing the, the, the partying and feasting that's going on in the rich man's house every day. Well, then Jesus says both men died and Lazarus goes to a place of blessing 
place of comfort um, with Abraham. It, this is, is this picturing uh, heaven. And the rich man says, goes to Hades, verse 23. This is, uh, in the New Testament, consistently a, a, a place of suffering for the unbelieving, the unfaithful. It's, it's a picture of, of hell. And just a note about this part of the parable. We shouldn't take all the details here as, as a literal description of the afterlife. That's not Jesus' point here. He's, he's teaching something through a parable, um, not making particular points about the afterlife uh, so much as the relationship between these two men. So uh, this is not a, not a literal picture of, of what, uh, what the afterlife is like. Um, uh, for one thing, it's, it's describing the, what we call in theology the intermediate state, right? When we die before Christ returns, uh, we're not, we don't enter into what's, what's eternal. We enter into the intermediate state. The, the, we're, we're still awaiting Christ's return and his uh, transforming all of creation and the resurrection of our bodies and so on, right? So the righteous, those who are in Christ, do go to heaven and those who are not in Christ go to hell, but they're still awaiting the return of Christ and the consummation of all things. So there's a description here of, of, of physical torment, um, the rich man suffering, uh, burning in Hades. Well, he doesn't have his resurrection body yet, right, to, to suffer in that way. Um, often, too often, Christians speak, you know, someone who's gone to heaven of, feasting and dancing and so on. Well, that's not literally the case because we, they don't have their resurrection bodies yet, right? And likewise here, it's not a, not a literal picture, um, but a figurative picture to teach some things uh, about um, this life um, and the implications it has uh, for the next life. The, man, the, the rich man then makes some requests. One of, one of the non-literal parabolic things about this picture is they're able to see each other and, and converse right, um, across this chasm. And so the, the, the rich man makes some requests. His first request in verse 23, interestingly, he, he recognizes Lazarus, right, and he knows his name. This man that he's walked by and ignored all his life at his gate and never offered any help, uh, he, he knows who he is. Uh, it wasn't that he missed him somehow or didn't, didn't see him there, um, he knew him by name. And, and imagine the shame that the rich man should have had by Jesus' description here uh, in seeing where they are now and recognizing that he never, never helped this man ever in his life. And yet he doesn't, he doesn't address Lazarus. He addresses Abraham and uh, appeals to Abraham for himself. He, he's not asking forgiveness or, or he's, there's no evident repentance for the way that he lived his life. There's no evident desire to be where Lazarus is, what is, what is his request? His request is simply that Abraham would command this Lazarus to come and help him out. Tell Lazarus to get over here and make me more comfortable. Right, so we can see his, his attitude really hasn't changed, even though he's seeing Lazarus receiving the blessing of God and he's suffering the punishment of God. And yet he also, in the, in the way that he addresses Abraham here, in verse 24, he does recognize their condition. He, he says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And that's a, that's a traditional uh, phrase, a traditional idiom uh, in, uh, in, in ancient, for the ancient Jews. Have mercy on me. 
Uh, it's a traditional cry of, of a beggar to someone who could help. You might recognize that on the lips of some people who address Jesus, the blind beggar. Uh, Lord, have mercy on me. Um, so Lazarus, or the rich man, recognizes that their situations are totally reversed. That's what Abraham goes on to describe later, we'll come to. The, the rich man makes another request uh, as well. Um, verse 27, uh, okay, you're not going to send Lazarus over here to help me out. Well, send him to my family. Command Lazarus to go down and warn my family. Again, he doesn't speak directly to Lazarus. He wants Abraham to command him. And Abraham's response is, your family has, has God's word essentially. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. If they won't hear God's word through Moses and through the prophets that God sent, they won't, they won't listen to Lazarus, even if he could be sent to warn them. And so the, the parable presents this contrast between two people and, and representing two kinds of people. Okay, the rich man representing one kind of person, the Lazarus as the poor cripple representing another kind of person. What is the kind of person that Jesus has been talking about, the, the teaching about, the kind of person in his kingdom? Well, an important key, I think, to understanding this parable and Jesus' point is, is the name of the poor man here. I'm looking at number two on your outline now. Uh, the name of this, this poor man. And names don't have, in our culture, they don't have the same meaning and significance that, that they did in ancient, most ancient cultures, where they gave people a name because of the meaning. That was, that was of huge importance in your family. Uh, that's still true in some cultures around the world, but generally in ours, we choose names because we like how they sound, and, and we don't necessarily care what, what they mean. Okay? So when we named our, our oldest son Owen, uh, we weren't making a, a sort of social genetic statement by giving him a name that means of royal birth, right? We just liked uh, how it sounds. And, and uh, those of you who um, are named Connor here today, uh, you may like dogs, but that's probably not why you got that name, which in the Irish simply means the lover of dogs, right? Uh, if you know someone named Calvin, uh, they probably weren't named Calvin because they were born bald, but that's all the word means in the Latin. Bald or hairless. Okay, uh, A lot of Calvins may become bald, but that's probably not the significance of their name. But in the Bible, in, in ancient world, there was big significance generally given to naming people. Uh, and especially, that's even heightened if you're telling a story and you get to choose the names for the people in the story. Right, so the, the meaning of a name in a parable is even heightened. And, and here's a little, little quiz, a little, little exercise for you. I want you to think about Jesus' parables, his dozens of parables, and, and think of the names of people in his parables. Can you think of any, any names that Jesus uses for characters in his parables? Well, that's actually kind of a trick question, because there's only one person in all Jesus' dozens of parables that is named. And that's Lazarus here. No one else in all of Jesus' parables has a name. It's, it's a man, a woman, a Pharisee, a tax collector. Only Lazarus is named. And so I think that even more heightens the importance of his name and, and its significance to Jesus' parable here. Uh, Lazarus' name is, is El Azar. And um, transliterated in English, we have Lazar 
us, right? Lazarus. Um, Elazar means God helps, or the one God helps. Lazarus is the one God helps. And it's almost, again, doubtless uh, intentional that Jesus chose that name for Lazarus to make a point in this parable. It's not like he was just telling a story and he said, and then there was a poor guy, let's call him Fred. You know, he, he gave him the name. This is the one God helps. And yet he seems to be ironically named, doesn't he? Lazarus in the story is the one who's suffering greatly. He has these huge physical problems. He can't walk. He suffers with these sores. He, he doesn't get enough food. He gets no help from those who could really make a difference in, in his life. He has uh, just ex- evidently extremely poor friends and, and some dogs who lick his wounds. And so Elazar, Lazarus, seems to be ironically named. My kids have a book about a porcupine named what? Fluffy. Right. And the point is, Fluffy wasn't. Right? Fluffy wasn't Fluffy. Um, Lazarus was not evidently Lazarus, Elazar. And so he must be a picture of one who believes that God helps, or one whom God ultimately helps. This is the kind of person God ultimately helps. And, and I think besides his name, maybe there's some subtle ways that we see that in, in the story. For example, just in, in Lazarus' calm confidence. He, he's not pictured as speaking or complaining. He's, he's silent in all of his suffering, uh, evidently waiting for the reward that he receives uh, at his death. That, that silent um, Maybe subtle humility carries on into this afterlife scene when he's insulted by the rich man who doesn't even address him, doesn't offer any kind of apology or concern at all, won't speak to him, just wants to command him. Uh, He's still silent. And yet after death, he becomes Eleazar, right? He becomes Lazarus. He becomes the one who God helps. Verse 22 says he's, he's taken to Abraham's bosom. Um, that's translating very literally the, the Hebrew idiom there, which is an a idiom pointing to a, a position of honor. Right? So some tra- most translations just have that flattened out. He's, he's at Abraham's side. But being, it says literally into the bosom of Abraham. It's just an idiom that means a place of honor. It's, it's not speaking so much just of, of where someone is geographically, but you're at the place of honor. So a couple other examples of that in the, in the Gospels. Uh, in John chapter 1, Jesus is said to be at the Father's side. Literally, it says, into the bosom of the Father. That's not speaking about where Jesus was before the Incarnation geographically. It's Jesus' position of honor with the Father, with God the Father. In in John 13, John says of himself at the Last Supper that he was reclining at the table uh, in the ESV close to Jesus. But it's, again, literally into the bosom of Jesus. He's not saying, I got to sit next to Jesus. He's saying, like, like, that's where I was. He's saying, I had the place of honor with Jesus. So Lazarus is, is pictured here as receiving honor and blessing. He's presented, I think, in this parable as a humble man who's, who's looking for his ultimate comfort in the next life. He's confident that God is his help 
as, as his name says, even if it doesn't appear so in this life. Well, to, to fully understand the, the import of this, let's look at the contrast. If, if Lazarus is a picture of the one whom God helps, the rich man must be a picture of the one whom God doesn't help. He ends up in, in Hades. Looking at number three on your outline. Again, he's presented as, as quite indulgent in his life. He's wearing purple clothes, the, the finest clothes. He's got Gucci and Chanel on, and, and he even has fine linen. The linen, um, that, that translates a word that's speaking of what's under his purple clothes. So it's actually saying he has the finest underwear, uh, even. Okay? Um, no doubt eating his fill of fine food every day, walking, again, walking past Lazarus every day. Lazarus suffering, starving, um, the rich man and his friends never helping Lazarus. Um, so he's pictured as just living for himself, right? Living for this life, living for the here and now over against Lazarus, uh, waiting for his, waiting for his reward, hoping in the Lord. Again, he makes these requests, uh, asking Abraham to command Lazarus, these, these rather selfish requests with no repentance. Uh, no acknowledgement of how he lived in front of Lazarus all his life. He wasn't considering others in need in his life. He, he, his mindset doesn't change uh, in, in, in the afterlife as it's pictured here as well. He, appears to, he appeals to Abraham as his father, right? as, as a fellow Jew, as, as if he has some connection and affinity with Abraham. Um, help me out, Father Abraham. But, but think about Abraham's life. And character, and the contrast between this rich man and Abraham is not that the rich man was rich and Abraham wasn't. If you read the stories of Abraham in Genesis, I think it's likely Abraham was maybe the wealthiest man in the world. Right? He had hundreds of of servants. He chased down five kings and beat them. Um, Abraham had massive wealth, and yet he followed and obeyed and relied on the Lord. Right? He used his wealth in God's service. Hebrews tells us of Abraham, he was looking for his satisfaction somewhere else, right? in a heavenly city. So that the rich man has affinity with none of that, with, with nothing of Abraham's life or faith. So Abraham responds to him in verse 25, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. There's a a subtle thing in his description there I want you to see. He, he describes, he tells the rich man, you received your good things. But the things that Lazarus received, he doesn't get the, the personal pronoun there. They're not his bad things. Lazarus received bad things, hard circumstances. But you, the rich man, you, you received your things. That is, the things that you chose. You chose wealth and indulgence and... and living for this life, and, and that's what you got. You got enjoyment of those things in that life. He was not living for God or considering others in need or looking for help from God in, in this life and the next. There's nothing wrong with his wealth at all, but he was living entirely for himself. That's what he chose. Abraham says, you, you chose your ultimate good. Your ultimate good was at the here and now to the exclusion of anyone else in need. And so that's all you get. Right? In the next life, you don't even get a drop of water. And it's, the, the point is not that, 
that God is sort of reversing their situations, that God reverses people's situations and sort of balances things out in the afterlife. That's not at all the point. But if you choose this life as your ultimate good, that's, that's all you get when you die. He makes a second request again in verse 27. When, so Abraham refused the, you know, tell Lazarus to come give me a drink request. And so he says, well, command Lazarus to go warn my family. Right? I've got five brothers still living. Send Lazarus to, to warn them. Like, like the Christmas carol, Jacob Marley. You know, if, if someone, a ghost comes, if someone rises from the dead, they'll be shocked and amazed and they'll change their life and, and they'll end up in a better place, is his idea. And Abraham says, it, that wouldn't even work. It, it's no use. Even if someone raised from the dead. And, and he, he teaches this, this points us to this important principle. It's confirmed through the Bible and throughout our experience that if you don't believe what God says, you won't believe what God does. If you don't believe what God says, you won't believe what He does. We see evidence of that everywhere. We wonder how so many people can see uh, in creation and science the evidence uh, of, of a good and powerful Creator and yet still attack and deny God. Or how so many people can reject the idea that God would, would punish people for sin, for wickedness. They don't believe what God does, they, and, and, and they won't because they reject what He said. They reject what is true. And, and there are powerful uh, illustra illustrations in reality that play out in the Gospels after this principle here. Right? Jesus goes on literally to raise the other Lazarus, the real Lazarus, from the dead. Right? Lazarus walks out of the tomb. And, and the very next verses after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, what, what do some of the people who watched Lazarus come out of the tomb, what do they do? They, they go off and have a meeting and plan how to kill Jesus. Right? They won't believe what they've seen or the implications of it because they haven't believed in Jesus and what he says. And then even... More strikingly and ultimately is, is Jesus' own raising from the dead. And Jesus in this parable is pointing to what he himself will do. He will raise from the dead to warn those uh, who, who hear him of the consequences of their sin. And that won't, that won't be enough for those uh, who won't hear him and won't believe the truth of God. And there's also a sense in which as Abraham responds to the rich man in this parable here, that, that Lazarus himself, Lazarus the poor man, is appearing to the rich man beyond death. Right? Laz the rich man is seeing the results of living in humble faith before God or not, uh, in seeing where he is and seeing where Lazarus is. And he doesn't repent. Why would his brothers repent? Well, what is, what is the point here? Why, why the comparison between these two men? Well, in verse 25, again, Abraham points out that, that both of these men have received something. Right? You, speaking to the rich man, you received and Lazarus has received. And what was received was, was different. They ended up in different places. Um, but the key thing, and, and again, it's, it has nothing to do with God saves the poor but not the rich or that there's anything wrong with wealth uh, inherently at all. 
But the key is the way that the two men are similar, that they both received. They both received their, their, their circumstances in life from God. This is what God allowed. This is what God gave to them uh, by, in, in his sovereign decree. And what's important then is, is their response. They both received from God. How would they respond to their circumstances, to what God gives? The, the, Lazarus was given certain circumstances, difficult, hard things, probably far beyond what most of us have experienced. And he responded in, in patient hope for what he then received when he died. The rich man was given opportunities every day to, to help this man, and, and he refused. And so, fourthly, finally, I just want you to consider how do you respond to what you've received? Uh, we all have this in common with, with Lazarus and the rich man, that we have received all that we have by the, by the sovereign ordination of God, all of our circumstances. And, and the basic application is, is this, two, two parts, is simply to receive what we have, our circumstances, as from God as within his good and wise plan and, and hope in him. And then secondly, as we have opportunity to, to imitate God. Imitate God as the one who helps, as the rich man did not, uh, in, in serving others around us. We, I think we have opportunity to apply both uh, the, the life of Lazarus and the rich man, the rich man's omission of what he should have done, uh, to our lives. Many people here this morning experience or have experienced or will experience great suffering. Right? You've been Lazarus. Maybe you are Lazarus, in a sense, this morning. The one whom God apparently does not help. Who's sort of ironically named in an outward sense. Right? In your suffering, you need to know that you are particularly the kind of person through whom God shows most powerfully his love and his help. Uh, keep faith in him. Be the one who believes Lazarus, believes Elazar, that God helps. Uh, maybe, maybe you're more in the position of, of the rich man this morning in terms of what you've received. You're not feeling the need for help outwardly. You're, you're prospering, you're healthy, uh, things are, are good. How do you respond? That's the key. How do you respond? What will you do then with your circumstances, with what you've received? Uh, Joni Erickson Tata, in one of her books, uh, writes, writes this about a report uh, from Harvard. That students in the MBA program at Harvard University were asked to create a strategic plan for their lives under the title, What Do I Hope to Achieve in Life After Graduation? She summarizes that the, the top three answers were wealth, notoriety, and status. And no one in the program wrote anything at all about service. Uh, clearly in this, this story, this parable here, the, the rich man should have imitated God's help. Right? He, should, he should have looked to God desperately as, as, as his helper and imitated that help to others as he had opportunity. God gave him the ability and the opportunity and he, he failed to use it every day. He failed to see it as, as his call to serve Lazarus, at least, right outside his door every day. 
In, in uh, several weeks when we start our classes again uh, on Sunday mornings, the adult class, we're going to be talking about uh, work and calling and vocation and thinking about all of life and every, every area of life uh, as God's call on us, seeing God use us, working through us to serve others. Uh, we have to view every, every part of our lives that way. In 1 John chapter 3, John writes this, but we, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and he sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? It's, it's ultimately a question of how you will respond to the gospel. Right? Whether the rich man was going to respond to the gospel that he knew of God's grace. Those whom God helps are those who rely on him, who show that they, they're his by what they do. Right, if, if we're ignoring opportunities to serve God and serve others right in front of us or all around us, particularly in injustices or, or great physical needs, uh, we need to be warned by this story. And that's, that's what I want to close by thinking about, the, the warning of this story. It, it warns us because soon it will be too late. Sooner it will be too late to connect our lives with what we profess or what we know and show that we really believe it, that we really embrace the love that God has shown to us. This pictures the fact that it, was, it became absolutely too late for the rich man. Not, not even a drop of water would be delivered to him after his death because he had so many opportunities to use what he received from God in his life. Both of these men were given opportunity to look to God, to serve Him, to see Him as their Father, and help the one who they imitate. There are two particular illustrations in the parable here of the finality of the next life, the fact that it will be one day too late. The first is the chasm here, right? an illustration of the finality of the next life. Abraham says, there's no possibility, rich man, of anyone crossing this chasm. Once, once you've died. You had your opportunity to respond to the Word and the grace of God. And the second is the fact that the rich man uh, essentially offers two prayers. Right? He makes two requests, two prayers toward heaven uh, in, his, in his suffering and regret in the next life. And both of them are rejected. Both of them are denied. They're not heard. And the clear emphasis in these, these pieces of the illustration are that it, it, it will be too late. God is long-suffering, but He doesn't give grace to unrepentant sinners forever. He calls you to faith in Christ today. And those of you who are disciples of Jesus, again, this points us to receiving from the Lord and depending on Him uh, and, and imitating Him uh, as the God who helps. It's a call to everyone poor, rich, suffering, comfortable, wherever you are, uh, to look for opportunities to imitate and to hope in uh, the God who helps. So whatever God has given you, whatever you've received from Him, uh, imitate and hope in the God who helps. Let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You again this morning for Your Word. We thank You for the 
the absolute truth of your word, that um, we can rely on it and live by it. We hope that you would, we pray that you would help us to live by what we have read and learned this morning uh, from this parable of our Lord Jesus, um, that we would be the one whom God helps, um, not understanding that because of anything that we've done in earning that help, uh, but being those who humbly receive from you and those who recognize our desperate need for your grace and our need for your help. Lord, give us that dependence. Help us to imitate your help towards others who are in, in need outwardly as well. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.